Welcome to Local Share Green Action Podcast. This show is produced by Go Green Locally, a 501c3 nonprofit providing tools and resources for people that are looking for ways to take even more successful local action that makes a difference for our people and our planet. Today in our podcast, I'm speaking with someone born on a reservation who combined organic farming experience from his childhood and adult life with studying multiple regenerative agriculture disciplines and ways to help better steward our lands through his education and activism organization. I'm speaking with William Wildcat Kwaki. William Wildcat Kwaki is the executive director of Mother Tree Food and Forest. Kwaki began his life in the Oklahoma Seminole Nation. He has practiced organic gardening since childhood organic farming for much of his adult life, and regenerative horticulture, food forestry, and wildlife restoration for the last decade. The studies and practices which inform his thought and work include Western science soil biology, mycology, botany, ecology, zoology, ecological anthropology, and history, ethnobotany, herbalism, plant fungi medicine work, conventional regenerative agriculture, ancient indigenous agroecology, and traditional ecological knowledge, as well as landscape water retention, wetland restoration, centropic agroforestry, food forestry, desert reforestry, Miyawaki reforestation, and ecological and ecology climate physics. Kwaki integrates these studies and systems of knowledge into a coherent picture of what human relationship with Earth looks like when we act as a steward species. Kwaki lives in the Miembras River watershed in the unceded lands of Siende Band of Chiricahua peoples, of the brown bear, of the jaguar, of the beaver, and of the forests and wetlands which disappeared with colonization. Welcome to the show, Kwaki. Thank you, Shani. Yeah, I'm so excited to speak with you and learn more about your path of green action with the work you're doing, integrating traditional ecological knowledge with many sciences and types of regenerative land practices. So what planted the seeds for you initially to want to start studying other regenerative practices outside of organic gardening and land stewardship, which you grew up with? Honestly, it was just observing that a lot of the conventional wisdom in agriculture was just wasn't true and it you know contradicted my understandings of mutualism and of you know complex cooperative systems I sort of grew up with in part from the culture of you know being around traditional natives growing up and then in part just from observation of reality you know and I would see things farming or cultivating plants you know, just just contradicted the conventional wisdom. And so it was sort of that dichotomy and wanting to understand what pieces of the conventional wisdom were wrong and why and understanding sort of intuitively. And then more and more as I looked into it, that there are you know, culturally based misconceptions and then really wanting to know what's actually going on down there. What are these ecosystems and how are these you know, you know, inside the soil, inside a small amount of soil or along a root zone, you know, what's actually going on. 
kind of started from there. That was the seed of all of it. I'm so intrigued by the diversity of your regenerative land studies. I know that when we talked earlier, you mentioned that you studied under Dr. Elaine Ingham about soil biology and went on to study mycology and Miyawaki forestry and centropic agroforestry, among many others. Can you briefly explain what these are and then maybe how you have been bringing them all together and the work that you've been doing with your organization, Mother Tree Food and Forest? Sure. I'm basically looking at three areas of human land interaction that are broad categories. One is agroecology or regenerative agriculture. One is food forestry, which is a little different. That's creating perennial gardens that will just perpetually put out food with very little work needing to go in once they get established. And that allows us to be the foraging species that we are, which allows us to return to what I would consider an evolutionarily natural set of behaviors so that our behavior doesn't have to be destructive. And then the third is ecological restoration, is using the wisdom we have to restore the ecosystems that our changes in behavior from that evolutionary set of natural behaviors, that the, our changes in behaviors have destroyed, so restoring the ecosystem. So agroecology, food forestry, and ecological restoration. And within that, within each one of those, there are a lot of different schools of thought and convention. And with agroecology, um, I, I like to teach centropic agriculture to people because it's a really creative mix of modern Western science within agronomy and ecology, and as well as some ancient indigenous agroforestry traditions from Brazil. And it, it's really powerful, and but it's also simple enough to teach. There's some incredibly advanced, what we call tr traditional ecological knowledge or something like that, but agroforestry, agroecology traditions from around the world that are thousands of years old, but they're very, very developed. It can take a lifetime to learn, say, the ancient form of milpa that is still practiced in a few places in Mesoamerica. It can take a lifetime. It's a 30-ish year cycle, so you might get three of those cycles in one life if you were born into it and did that your whole life. And so that's you know, that's, that'd be a lot to ask of people trying to learn how to do things correctly in this culture where we, where we don't have much ecological knowledge. So centropic agroforestry, and agroforestry is a word we mostly don't use in this country, so I just say agriculture. Centropic agriculture, which does include trees and shrubs, hence the agroforestry part of that, is this really creative, powerful system that's a process-driven system as opposed to an input-driven system. So instead of adding you know, mulch and fertilizer and this and that. I mean, you might add some mulch at the, at the very beginning, but then you're creating mulch and you're, we're coaxing these systems and we're leveraging what we know about ecology and plant physiology and mycology and soil biology and the interaction between plants and animals and fungi. We're leveraging what we know to have these systems, to help these systems do what they want to do naturally working. So we're working with these systems and they're process driven this is a process-driven agricultural system for us as opposed to an input-driven system. So it's free, you know, it doesn't cost people anything. And it's it's a pretty steep learning curve for, for people who've been doing just business as usual, US style organic farming. 
that system's not very developed. And so this is a much more developed system. So there's a lot to learn and there's a lot to do. It's a very work intensive thing, but agriculture is a work intensive thing. And, you know, we're, we are a foraging species. So that work is kind of unnatural for us. So the, the next piece where I look at is food forestry. And there are a lot of different systems and ways to do that. Jeff Lawton, is one of the famous permaculture people who talks about food forestry has done a wonderful job of explaining the reasoning behind it to us. And the reasoning is simple. Evolutionarily, we are a foraging species. Wherever we got away from foraging, there are now deserts and the planet is now desertifying at an alarming rate. And for, for us to return back to natural sets of behaviors, which are healthy for us as individuals, and then healthy for the ecosystems that we're getting our food from, food forestry allows us to, to do that, to return to natural sets of behavior, to foraging. And so food forestry is really the beginning and the end of every conversation about how humans can restore equilibrium and the ecosystems that they're getting their food from and restore equilibrium internally and communally, socially, interpersonally. Um, so I, I talk a lot about that and teach that. And then with eco-restoration, you know, this was a forested planet. And through changes in human behavior, through us getting away from foraging, we've created these very large deserts around the world. And we've um, moved Mother Earth's systems beyond some critical thresholds to where now the global climate is destabilizing. And we're in an extinction event that is accelerating. And, you know, the... Anastasia Makarieva and some of the Eastern European and Russian climate ecology physicists have explained very clearly how forests cool the surface of the earth and how they regulate global hydrologic cycles to maintain a global climate, which is most advantageous for all of the forms of life that have fallen into equilibrium together that we are a part of. You know. And and they've shown that when you remove forests from continents, that the continent, the surface temperature be, begins heating up. It doesn't have that cooling system anymore. So the surface of the planet heats up and global hydrologic cycles are interrupted. So instead of having frequent light rain events and more rain total per year, you now we now have less frequent but more intense rain events, less rain total per year. And there's so many, we're, we're just seeing more and more how that works. You know, we see that organic seed cloud seeding particles such as spores or bacteria can seed clouds at lower temperatures than inorganic particles like dust or pollution. And so now things have to be hotter in order for it to rain and things are getting hotter. And so when you have the, the hotter rain, you have these larger, bigger storms, which is what we're seeing on the planet and more destructive. So when it does rain, you have these big, erosive, destructive events that can actually push ecological succession backwards. These can be big disturbance events. So it's really, we've passed some critical thresholds and we need to be very intelligent now as a species in how we go about reforesting this planet. And we have only to plant trees now. We have to reforest this planet in order to stabilize global climate, to get hydrologic, global hydrologic cycles under control, to refill, recharge the continents with water, with fresh water, where they will hold fresh water again, and to begin cooling the surface of the planet again, to create soil to get all the carbon that is acidifying the ocean out of the ocean and back into soil on continents, 
The way we do that is by reforesting the planet, creating giant grasslands as an insufficient standard in terms of the effectiveness of running the biotic pump. You know, this planet was predominantly forested and needs to be forested again if we want to mitigate this extinction event and stabilize global climate. So there are some techniques where we can push things back beyond critical thresholds the other way in a positive direction. And one of these powerful techniques that we learn a lot from is called Miyawaki reforestation. And this is an energy money intensive system that is not scalable to where we can reforest the whole planet doing this, but we can learn some really important lessons from it. And we can do it locally wherever we are to make our local environments more comfortable, to give us buffers against climate extremes and to restore biodiversity and wildlife where we are, you know, near human populations. And then we can we can take what we learn from Milwaukee reforestation, from centropic agroforestry, from you know, the ancient form of milpa and some of these other ancient indigenous sites very developed sciences, much more developed than anything we're doing in agroecology or ecological restoration in the English-speaking techno-industrial world, these very developed, thousands of years old, integrated applied sciences. What we what we learn from them, we can put all of these schools of thought together, the Elaine Ingham, soil food web stuff, just put all of these schools of thoughts together to figure out how to reforest at scale energy, time, money, labor efficiently. And so that's a part of what I do is, you know, think about that. I do research there and I'm just trying to adapt known methodologies to desert climates because the planet is desertifying. And I, I really think that it's important to help human beings meet their needs, you know, so that we can have full capacity. So we as individuals and as communities and as a species can really have agency to affect global climate and global ecology positively, because when people don't have their needs met, then, you know, they're stressed out. We're working with diminished capacities in those states. And so we don't even have the capacity to really affect change in a positive way beyond that. Yeah, would you would you like more detail about what Milwaukee or Centropic are? Or? Have you go over really quickly? My understanding of Milwaukee is the method is to plant trees, na native trees and shrubs very close together and with enhanced soil biology. Can you maybe elaborate on that a little mm -hmm. bit? Correct me if I'm... Yeah, those are some of the pieces of it. I think the important points are that you're planting a real biodiversity of trees and shrubs and woody vines, things that create lignin, because the saprophytic fungi, they don't decompose lignin. Lignin is very complex chains of sugars to begin with. Saprophytic fungi will turn those into more complex molecules called omic substances, and then turn those into fulvic substances, and then turn those into humic substances, which are progressively more and more complex molecules. The humic substances are the most complex molecules on the planet. The fungi, of course, are the master chemists on this planet, so they, they do all the amazing chemistry here. And they create those magical molecules, which do the really amazing gas transfer, water infiltra infiltration and retention. They'll, they'll keep atoms that have broken off of molecules from remineralizing to where plants and animals can use them again or other fungi, bacteria can put them into organic molecules where they can remain in the nutrient cycling system. And they do you know, all kinds of other stuff, amazing habitat for, for life, bacteria. So we're in Milwaukee, we focus on lignin producing things, so wood 
woody vines and then trees and shrubs. So in Milwaukee, we want a real biodiversity, like 20 species or more, 30 species or more if you can, of woody vines, shrubs and trees that are very close together, like you said. We do three to seven per square meter, and that contradicts the competition model of reality. But in ecology and biology, the competition model is, is just false and has like limited our capacity to understand and to grow in our comprehension of ecology and biology for decades. And brilliant people like Lynn Margulis and Elaine Ingham have sort of broken us free of that because what we see are just these layers and layers of mutualisms. So we get a minimum biodiversity of tree shrubs and woody vines very, very close together. We will amend soil, we'll, we will add a biodiversity of microbes and fungi, you know, we'll, we'll inoculate with the, something that ideally Johnson Sioux compost or something which is a fungal prominent, super biodiverse compost, but fungal prominent, a lot of species of saprophytic fungi, of soil fungi. And ideally, you know, good diversity of amoebas and other things like that. So if you can get a little tiny bit of, of, of soil to inoculate your Johnson Sioux compost with from healthy forest, healthy riparian areas, et cetera, just to get the biodiversity in there. Well, we will inoculate with that. If you don't have Johnson Sioux compost, the Rodell, Elaine Ingham, thermophilic style compost, a good fungal prominent vermipost and Elaine Ingham's composting classes can explain how to make a fungal prominent vermipost, which is worm compost. So we'll inoculate with something. The lament, if you're starting with a really brutal soil, like if you just pick up the parking lot asphalt off of a Walmart parking lot, it's completely compacted, completely, I mean, almost completely sterile. Then they'll use a front loader or something to just break up a few feet of soil to mix organic matter in to begin with and inoculate. You get a biodiversity of tree shrubs and woody vines very close together. You mulch a whole lot, and then you irrigate supplementally whenever, depending on where you live, whenever it's getting dry enough or hot enough, long enough, that that they need water just to survive, well, really to keep thriving. You'll irrigate supplementally by sprinkling, mimicking natural systems as we're always doing, not drip, not flood irrigation, but sprinkling for the first three years. And we're seeing that two years is sufficient, but we're still saying three and doing three in public projects just to be safe. Another piece that is important here, you mentioned that they're native species. This is a native species reforestation. Another significant piece that gets lost in conversation sometimes is that these are mature forest species. So they're not what we would call pioneer species that are turned, that are the the immediate immune system response to a big disturbance that come in first to recreate soil, recreate shade conditions, recreate the conditions that forest species can then begin growing in. So not those in-between species, the pioneer species that would come in first if things were left to their own devices. We're skipping that whole stage of ecological succession and planting only mature forest, trees, shrubs, and woody vines. And, and yeah, I think those are the important pieces of that. Um, oh, you know, um, so we're, we're filling in the canopy layers too. And this is a piece that doesn't get talked about a whole lot because most people in Centropic Agroforestry and Milwaukee reforestation and ecological restoration, I mean, there are very few people in the United States in the English speaking world who are talking about this because I, I don't think we really understand the importance of having all of the canopy strata filled in in a forest and in an in a ecological restoration situation and an agroecology situation. When we fill in the canopy strata, 
we maximize the amount of photosynthesis that's happening per area. So we maximize the amount of sugars going into the soil food web per area. So the rate at which soil is being built, et cetera. But we also, we really begin to set up a, a small water cycle. And small water cycle is not well understood by a lot of people, but it, small water cycle basically means local water economy. And I mean, I could get kind of into the physics of that, but I'm not going to right away, you know, if there's time at the end, if you're interested, I could, I'd love to explain it. But when the canopy strata are filled in and you have a dense forest that's dense in all three dimensions, when we plant close together, we get things dense close together. And by having that biodiversity, we're inherently filling in the canopy strata because we have trees and shrubs of different sizes that are necessarily just filling in the strata. So when we fill things in three-dimensionally tight like that, you have this humid environment that wind can't move through very much. And everybody's transpiring. Plants transpire to control the temperature. They turn liquid water into gas water. 97% of all the water plants use is just for controlling the temperature so photosynthesis can happen in its optimal range. That's what all, almost all the water plants are using is just to keep photosynthesis happening in its optimal range. And if you have a t an area that's full of trees and shrubs and just leaves everywhere, photosynthesis everywhere, the wind can't move very much air in and out of that. And you have so much transpiration happening that's a very humid environment. But a couple of things are going on. One is that humid environment that wind has not taken the humidity out of at nighttime when things condense, all that water turns back into liquid and comes back into the soil, any water that's left in the area. So you have, that's how like local water economy, you get a lot of that water back. But then also it only takes so much water to absorb the finite amount of thermal energy that is needed to be absorbed to get that optimal photosynthesis temperature. And so collectively, those trees together can collectively use that amount of water to get the temperature range right where they need it to be. And then after that, you can have more and more and more and more plants in that area, but they don't have to use more water because it's already in that optimal range. So then we become very, very water efficient per plant, the more dense we fill in that area. And that piece, I don't hear anybody talking about that. I think that piece is sort of missing from the conversation. And so it's really important to understand that we, the thing about Milwaukee forests, we plant trees so close together and create such dense canopies that we create forests that can take care of their own water needs. So these forests are more resilient against fire, which is a huge important piece missing from the collective conversation in, in the US Southwest where fire historically has been an issue for the last 20 years, but now the whole North America fire is becoming an issue. Hawaii fire is becoming an issue. And that piece of the conversation is very important and is missing. Dense forests are resilient against fire. Thin forests are not. Dense forests can take care of their own water needs because they're creating soil quickly and they have the small water, the local water economy, small water cycle. And because they're physically keeping wind from replacing humid air with dry air. And so for a number of reasons, that density and filling in canopy strata is vital for the health of a forest, vital for the health of any ecosystem, vital to maintain, to create and maintain the small water cycle and make things resilient against fire, vital to keep things properly hydrated. So in a Milwaukee forest, you can stop irrigating after three years in the desert and you've triggered a forest event in the desert and you will have a mature forest create itself in the desert after only irrigating for three years because you planted so densely.
which is contrary to the way we think in the Western world with the competition lens. But competition is just wrong. It's it's wrong. It's not what's going on here ecologically. You, you yourself, I think we've had a discussion quickly about like Suzanne Samard's work is like, aside from referencing some of her studies, what what are some of like the resources that or references that you use for that line of knowledge since it isn't really prevalent in the United States yet? Well, are you talking about with small water cycle specifically or with mutualism as a whole? No, the mutualism I would say is definitely there's a lot of data that Suzanne Samard was able and is constantly adding more to, I would say more of the water cycle and also how fire is reacting differently than what we're modeling for. So maybe that data. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm trying to begin those projects right now to show that, you know, my, this understanding all came to me from learning about Milwaukee and learning centropic agroforestry. And the United States is the, the least ecologically literate culture in the world that I know of. Every Latin American country I know of, people are much more ecologically literate. So if you want to learn more about ecology or biology, agroecology, ecological restoration, and you're from the United States, the first thing you want to do is learn any other language so that you can understand teachers who are more developed in all of this. And so for me, it's been Spanish and Portuguese. And I speak Spanish well enough to study with Namaste Messerschmitt, who's one of the world authorities and one of the great teachers, one of the great minds, just a beautiful being, just a beautiful mind with centropic agroforestry, centropic agriculture. And his comprehension, Ernst Goch is the person who brought centropic agroforestry, who put these different sciences together and created centropic agroforestry out of Brazil also. Um, he and Namaste Messerschmitt are two incredible minds who, who have brought me enough ecological knowledge that in combination with Milwaukee, I mean, Milwaukee reforestation shows us you can create a forest in the desert and they don't fail. After irrigating for only three years, you can stop irrigating and a forest returns itself in the desert. So that's proof of this. And then a lot of the why came to me studying with, you know, with Namaste, but also reading his writing, reading Ernst Goetsch's writing. And it's it's all of it. It's it's you know, studying mycology, studying soil biology, studying plant physiology, and just thinking through all of this, putting all these schools of thought together, because you know, in our culture, we segregate these different schools of thought in a university, and we just teach this segregation. I think you know, I don't know if my vocab is failing me. There's a specific word for that. But, you know, we have to really practice dissolving those walls in our minds to allow all of the areas of knowledge that we have to come together to inform each other because they do inform each other. And then we can get further with all of it if we can allow all those schools of thought to come together. And it's it's been a lot of meditation for me, honestly, a lot of learning, thinking about intellectually with my left brain, but then resting my brain and going quiet in my mind and, you know, resting, stilling those vertices and, you know, quiet and then in, in nature with trees to inform and direct that, that growth. Amazing. What is your vision for your work? 
How do you see these methods manifesting in maybe urban and suburban areas of our towns and cities, as well as maybe larger pieces of property out in the country or beyond? Hmm. Well, the, yeah, the my vision generally is syntropic agroforestry, syntropic agriculture close to home, or whatever type of regenerative agriculture you're doing, to, you know, right close to home, zone zero, as they'd say in permaculture, because that's the hard work. And that is continuous, like yearly planting and replanting and you know, multiple stages of planting, multiple stages of harvest. That's where the real work happens. So centropic agriculture close to home, food forestry around that, native species reforestation around that, and then massively. And that just makes sense for taking care of the needs of human populations, decentralizing food systems, you know, just to restore local economies and local health human health, local ecological health, everything, you know, that's the system that makes the most sense to me. You know, centropic or really regenerative agriculture, zone zero, close to home, food forestry around that, native species reforestation around that. that that's my vision generally. In rural areas or small towns, edge of town, outside of town, that makes a lot of sense and is really the way to go. In cities, you know, how do we do that in LA? What does that look like in Las Vegas, Nevada? You know, LA, I heard a brother on TED Talk yesterday say that LA, the city of LA owns 26 square miles or something like that of vacant lots and abandoned buildings. That's a lot of food production capacity. That's a lot of native species reforestation capacity. New York City has 14,000 acres of suitable rooftops for food production. And so there are a lot of people, oh, I forgot to look up this person's name. I don't know why I'm not recalling it. And last time we spoke, I couldn't recall it. So I knew to look this up and I forgot. There, there are a lot of people who are drawing out and mapping out the details of, you know, how much food can be grown in a city and then change like in the suburbs you have front and backyards you know so those can all be food forests and gardens and should be that's my vision as a part of my vision is that you know all lawns become edible landscapes all parks become edible all vacant lots become edible landscapes and it's a no-brainer i mean this is just sustainability 101 how do we take care of our own needs 101 and we can't expect our leaders to do this we can't wait for them we can't keep forfeiting our power we have to turn vacant lots and you know abandoned buildings and stuff into food forests and um, syntropic gardens, really regenerative gardens, so that we can have access to nutrient-dense, medicine-dense foods for our children so that our children can develop properly. Because we're not getting those even from the co-op or the farmer's market. Nobody's, we're not, there's not a lot of regenerative agriculture, meaning really biodiverse that includes trees and shrubs in our agricultural system. So we have a huge diversity of fungi species, especially saprophytic fungi species, but mycorrhizal fungi species, endo and ecto, and all the other subcategories and tweeners and weird stuff that we don't even have names for. But this huge biodiversity of fungi, the master chemists on this planet. We need trees and shrubs in super biodiverse polyculture systems in order to have the really robust nutrient and medicine cycling that we need to have nutrient and medicine dense foods so that we can see our full epigenetic potential so that our children can see their full epigenetic potential. And this is vital for, for a lot of obvious reasons. 
And that, that's sort of it in cities. There's just, I mean, 26 square miles of land that could be used for growing super nutrient dense foods. And so in, a, in that vacant lot in your neighborhood, if you grow biodiverse polyculture and include a biodiversity of trees and shrubs in that system, and these can be nut trees, fruit trees, you know, mulberry leaves are as nutrient dense as moringa leaves, you know, elm leaves are as nutrient dense as moringa leaves, and these are medicinally therapeutic and, as well. And so we can have way more nutrient dense foods easily coming out of a vacant lot in a ghetto neighborhood than anything at any co-op in these that you know that affluent people have access to poor people can create more nutrient dense foods in the ghetto than affluent people have access to because there's not a lot of re truly regenerative agriculture happening in this country even though we're using that word a whole lot and not everybody familiar with dr elaine ingham's work and obviously there's so many other soil biologists that have brought this kind of information to light. And maybe you just want to touch on that a little bit, that with the right fungal elements that plants are able to absorb nutrients with the relationship that's going on in the soil. Maybe if you just want to touch on it, I think it's illuminating. Yeah. illuminating. yeah, thank you for that invitation. You put it simply, different categories of plants feed different categories of microbes and fungi. Different categories of microbes and fungi do different types of nutrient cycling. They make different types of foods and medicines and pre chemical precursors to medicines available to plants. And so the more plant biodiversity you have in a system, the more microbial and fungal biodiversity you have in that system. The more fungal and microbial biodiversity you have in a system, the more nutrient diversity and medicine diversity you have in the plants in that system and in all of the plants. And we know that plants are sharing because of Suzanne Simard's work and a lot of other people's work. We know that they're sharing through the fungal networks. And so even if two, a, a tree and some broadly flowering plant, even if they don't associate with the same soil fungi in their root systems, those fungi associate. And so that tree can share with that plant. The, the plant says, hey, I need some phosphorus. I don't have enough phosphorus and that its fungal partner sends the word out to the other fungi species and organisms in that network and that system. The whole system is one organism in this sense, you know? And so they ask around, this tree has extra phosphorus, that tree needs a little bit extra nitrogen. And so this these leguminous forbs have some extra nitrogen that the tree gets and everybody's sharing. And we, we know that with certainty that you know, in centropic agriculture, we talk about the metal organism, and this concept gives us great comprehension that if, you, if you're thinking of each plant as, an, as a whole being, then it's easy to apply competition and survival of the fittest and all this stuff that confuses, stunts our ability to understand what we're seeing in these systems. When we think of each individual plant as a cell in the larger being and that whole ecosystem, that whole farm, the whole garden, the whole ecosystem as the organism, then it's really easy to understand what we're seeing. So yeah, bas basically that's it. I mean, the fungi are master chemists. So the fungi in the soil can make chemical precursors and then the endophytic fungi, who are the symbiotic fungi living inside of plants can take those chemical precursors and create these complex medicines. If those fungi are present in that system in the soil food web. So 
the more categories, so the more species of plants, the more species of microbes and fungi in the soil food web, the more species of microbes and fungi in the soil food web, the more nutrient density and medicine density each one of those plants have. So when you, the more species of plants you have in your garden, the more nutrient and medicine dense all of those plants are going to be. Food plants, medicine plants, fiber, dyes, whatever you're growing there. All, all of them will be more nutrient dense for that reason. Um, I don't um, know if you've ever discussed yeah. bio reactors as a as a great option for composting. I, when I studied it, I was just like, this is so awesome because, yeah. you know, you, you prepare it once and then basically, you know, you're, you're maybe adding a little bit of water steadily, but it's setting. And then what you're adding worms at a certain point. Do you want to maybe share a little bit about that? I'm presuming yeah. on them before. So what was the last thing you said? Presuming that you created these before you've done them as well. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. There are two reasons why a person might create a compost system. One is to create food for plants. And the other is the really powerful reason, which is to create an inoculant source that can help ecological succession accelerate forward, help turn desert back into grassland, back into forest. And in a desert system, you don't have much fungi in the soil, so you don't have much nutrient density in the foods. In a forest, you have a whole lot. And so to just to increase the health of our gardens or our agricultural systems, our food forests, or to allow native species reforestation to happen more quickly, such as in Milwaukee reforestation, we inoculate, we create these powerful inoculant sources. And again, we want a biodiversity of fungi. We're selecting for fungi in everything we're doing. They're the master chemists. They're the one, they're the terraformers. They're the communicators that, you know, Plants and animals branched off of fungi after fungi were fungi. We are fungal strategies. It's fungi who took algae and bacteria out of the ocean to terraform this planet. It's a it's the fungi show out here. So we're all, always selecting for fungi and everything we're doing. Johnson's Sioux compost. So there are a lot of different composting systems on this planet. The oldest one is 400 or so million years older than all of the others. And it's just the way leaves fall on the earth and rot right there. That's the best system for nutrient cycling. If you're if you're composting to feed your garden, stop doing that. Just allow every stick and leaf and every dead insect and pee in your garden, bleed in your garden when you're bleeding. I mean, you know, just allow natural processes because that system is a whole lot more developed and advanced than any composting system human beings have made for the purpose of feeding. However, if you want to compost to create a powerful inoculant source to restore ecosystems quickly, the most powerful way to do that is called Johnson's Sioux bioreactors. Johnson hyphen Sioux SU, the last names of this couple who created it. And bioreactor is just like a transmorphinate, like it's just some crazy word to sell it or something. I don't know what it is. It's just a compost. It's just composting. There's nothing sciencey or freaky going on. And it's unique in that it is a static compost, meaning you don't have to turn it. And it's just really simple. You just put columns, vertical columns of air in the middle of it. So there can be no area that's more than a foot away from oxygen. So nothing can go anaerobic because all of the fungi that we want in a healthy soil food web are all aerobic organisms like we are and like plants are that need to be in oxygen rich environments to live. You know, all of the healthy soil organisms are aerobic organisms. So the bacteria, the amoeba, everybody that you want in that biodiversity of that inoculant source you're making. And inoculant means something that you're going to inoculate with. To inoculate means to put some life in an area where there wasn't life. So 
you could, if you take a little bit of compost that has some fungi species that are not present in your garden, but you've already created an environment where they could thrive and you put them in and they take hold, you just inoculated your garden. So for people who don't know what that word means, that's what that means. So an inoculant source is a source of all these living life forms, these species of life that are going to benefit the soil food web. And that's why we make a Johnson Sioux. So because you make these vertical columns of air inside of it, there's no area that's more than two feet away from oxygen, more than one foot away from oxygen. So nothing can go anaerobic, so you don't have to turn it. So it's, it's a little bit more work up front, but then there's a whole lot less work throughout the life of the thing. And you create this fungal prominent compost system that is this amazing inoculant source that can turn help turn deserts back into forest. It can help turn a non-productive garden into a very productive garden a lot more quickly than things would happen naturally. And if you do everything correctly, you don't have to, you don't have to make compost. You don't have to inoculate with compost. It, but if we make a compost in a coherent, intelligent way that creates a fungal prominent and super biodiverse inoculant source, then we can just jumpstart and really accelerate that rate of ecological succession in an area. And another little detail about Johnson Sioux, the fact that it's static, you know, Elaine Ingham teaches the thermophilic compost method, which makes a super biodiverse fungal prominent compost system. But you're, every time you turn it, you're breaking up all of those mycelial networks. And that that's the organism. You're breaking, you're tearing this organism into 300 different pieces. And if each piece can survive, then it starts growing again and it becomes its own organism. But you just put that whole thing backwards and so when we think about ecological succession, you put, you're disturbing that ecosystem that is that compost system. So Johnson Sioux gets to go through ecological succession to, to realize stages of ecological succession that are never realized in a Elaine Ingham style thermophilic compost system. So you have types of biodiversity and types of mutualisms and systems that are functioning there that you would never see in any other type of composting system that I know of. So it's really... It's a tremendous technology that was created pretty recently and is spreading around the world like wildfire because it's the most powerful, most important form of composting that humans have created. Thank you so much for sharing. Uh, Thank you for asking. Why that's like, wow, illuminating. <laughs> what kind of knowledge do people gain when they take your courses? Are the courses kind of divided up according to maybe different land sizes or topography or growing conditions? How, how are you doing that? I mean, what you're learning when I teach is what well, are the basics of soil biology, ecological succession, plant physiology, the relationships between plants, animals, fungi, bacteria, everything. You're learning the foundational principles of all of these relationships and interactions and systems and mutualisms so that you can go into any unique situation that you find with these tools to adapt known methodologies to the reality that you're looking at so that you're not trying to apply an algorithm without the ability to adapt it to unique situations. So I, I bring together all of the schools of thought from Western science that have anything to contribute to any of this, these conversations and a lot of the ancient, very developed sciences as well, the ancient agroecology sciences and ecological land management stuff we might call TEK, traditional ecological knowledge, stuff like that, to try to put together this coherent picture. And so that's a, that's a part of it. I'm also teaching people to listen, like how to listen, so that they're not going in with white savior 
delusion the way I used to, you know, coming into a community that I had no relationships with, with a bunch of solutions for people who I didn't know yet. You know, it's not just disrespectful, it's not realistic, and it's not anywhere near as effective as coming in and creating relationships with and listening and observing and getting to know and then developing relationships with so that your work can be co-creative. It can be informed by the beings living there, by the people living there, by the you know, actual, and those beings know what they need, you know, and so they can direct you. So I'm teaching, yeah, that, how to listen, how to, how to feel your feelings, you know, so that you can be present, how to quiet your mind so that you can be present, so that you can receive orientation and direction and support. Um, yeah, a lot, a lot of what I'm teaching is, you know, stuff you might call indigenizing or re-indigenizing. It's, I'm just, I'm trying to teach nourishing relationships, how, how we restore nourishing relationships internally with the parts of ourselves, interpersonally, interspecially, if I can make an adverb there. Yeah, how, how to restore healthy relationship, like equilibrium, balance, so that, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what you learn when you take one of my classes. What are some of the challenges? Based. And how did you overcome them in implementing the many forms of regenerative agriculture that you are using? Our challenges right now, and we're on a planet whose global climate is destabilizing right now. And we're on a planet that is in an accelerating extinction event right now. So these are big challenges. Our challenges are a human cultural problem and time. You know, we don't have a lot of time left. We have agency right now. And so we still have time, but we're, you know, we don't have much time. And every time a species goes extinct, then we've run out of time for that species, you know, and it's just, this is accelerating right now. So we have a human cultural problem and time. And so it's, you know, addressing culture, maybe not directly in the sense of speaking on it being that, like, I don't necessarily speak on the comprehension that I have that I'm trying to heal culture, but that's what this is. That's what re-indigenizing means, is healing these wounds that have come from all of the genocides of all of our indigenous ancestors on every continent on this planet. Those are huge wounds. The Inquisition, I mean, I just think about the Salem witch trials. I mean, killing medicine women in our communities in on this country. I mean, the genocide of our indigenous European ancestors followed us to this country, to this continent. You know, it's this is all very recent, you know, Everybody has gone through the same thing recently, the, the genocides of our indigenous ancestors who separated us from all of these healthy, balanced, beautiful relationships. And all that trauma is still reverberating, rolling through our families, affecting every perception and interaction I have, you know, until I can give that enough loving attention that it, I can release enough of the charge from that, that I can pause, not have to react and have some agency myself for choice, for actually making a choice rather than reacting to stimuli. And so, yeah, it's, it's just this, like teaching people how to feel their feelings, how to have positive self-talk, how to cultivate self-love and self-worth, how to have emotional fluency, how to create a needs-based culture, an emotionally fluent needs-based culture that addresses all of the needs of all of the beings of all species and 
whatever ecosystem we're a part of equally and fully. And then just figuring out like, you know, the whole review of the language when we begin looking at what we think decolonization is, it normally begins with the total review of the language that I choose, that I use to narrate my metaphors and my stories with, you know, it's kind of where it starts. So stuff like that. And then, you know, with this culture, so to speak to that, you know, a little bit, there's this really important idea that I think is missing in this, in the predominant culture here in this country that animal behavior, not just the presence of the animal in an ecosystem. So not just whether there are brown bears in an ecosystem or not, but their specific set of behaviors the behavior of an animal has a physical, chemical, and biological impact. That means that it has an ecological impact. So not just the presence, but the behavior itself. Um, so the behavior of animals has always been an integral part of the co-evolution of every ecological system. The sets of behaviors that have always been integral part of the co-evolution of every ecological system. Now, culture dictates behavior, dictates ecological impact. And we see that... And so in this, the, the reality is that all animals have language, all animals have culture. We, not everybody in the techno-industrial world realizes that. This culture teaches us that, that that's not true. And you have to, through your own experiences, observe that in order to learn that if you come from this culture. But, but it's observable. You know, there are, it's true. And so it's observable everywhere. If you really have reverence for dogs, you, you see that. You know, there are groups of timber wolves in British Columbia who swim miles offshore to go hunt on islands off the coast of British Columbia, when the other groups of wolves around them don't do that. They have a different culture, so their behavior is different, so their ecological impact is different. Culture dictates behavior, dictates ecological impact. So when human culture changed, that we moved away from being a foraging species and started creating these new hunting technologies, new agriculture, you know, begin at doing agriculture, shepherding, where those changes happened or where the great deserts on the planet began and that's when they began and but it's not that humans are a cancer on the planet we're not we're of this planet we're from it we're of it it's that our behavior has become detrimental because the behavior changed enough and it only takes 10 million years for things to restabilize if we keep doing what we're doing and somehow survive this extinction event in 10 million years we can still be doing what we're doing and Earth will figure out how to take advantage. Earth's ecosystems will figure out how to take advantage of these sets of behaviors. So that's not a good strategy for us or for anybody. That's a you know, that'd be a terrible strategy. But that's, you know, we, things would restabilize. But you know, we don't have that. That time frame is not realistic for us. You know. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to speak to that. That it's it's a behavioral thing. Now we're a foraging species. If we just so food forestry, just create perennial gardens that you don't have to keep planting. And then you just have giant trees and shrubs and vines and asparagus, perennial forbs, things just just free food forever, you know, for your kids, your family. So when you're sick, when you're old, you know, I mean, maybe you can do regenerative agriculture right now and it's fun and you love it. And you can somehow pay your bills, even though you're spending all your time in your garden, or maybe you can sell things from your garden to, to pay your bills. I mean, but when you're 84, it's gonna be harder to, summon that energy and it will be nice for you if then you have a lot of free food just coming to you year after year without you needing to put in that work over and over again if you're ever going through a mentally emotionally turbulent period you know or, or if you're ever biologically ill or you know when somebody is going through childbirth you know she can't work she needs some real time to just be present with that child and with her own healing and 
in that transition period, it's good to have free food growing around. So the human cultural piece is the big challenge. We heal it by just the re-indigenizing work that we do, learning to feel feelings, learning how to listen, learning to communicate in mutually empowering ways, a la nonviolent communication school of thought, stuff like that. The other challenge is time. And so we've kind of spoken to that too. Johnson's Sioux Compost accelerates things, planting a biodiversity densely together, getting all canopy spread accounted for, accelerates things. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, a really good job of explaining that. How have you seen people successfully work through the challenges of colonization mindsets that are kind of, you know, so interwoven in our current culture that we can kind of separate it and look at it and, you know, make conscious decisions moving forward, maybe not kind of just reacting from what is become the fibers of our <laughs> our memories and way of being yeah god yeah great question thank you there's so many ways you know how vandana shiva explains that all of these ecological problems and all of these social justice problems are the same problem that all of these ecological and social justice movements are the same movement therefore you know i really understand that to be true, that we have a cultural problem, and that cultural problem is a lack of reverence for life, right? And that includes for ourselves. And so it's like so many different things, learning how to actually listen. And I'm three years into really learning how to, like, really making that a study. And I think that no matter where any one of us is in that, that we probably, most of us in this country still have room to grow there. Learning how to cultivate self-love and self-worth, learning how to really, really be done with negative self-talk and to replace it fully with completely compassionate, supportive, loving self-talk. Spending time in wilderness, nature bathing, dealing with nature deficiency disorder, turns capacities back online, lowering your extraction rates in your garden, you know, sharing, learning how to share, like ending the war, ceasing fighting against all the other beings and learning to share and like just getting out of the mood of scarcity and fighting into the mood of planting enough for everybody, for the deer, for the rabbits, for everybody helps people heal and come out of that to go through that re-indigenizing process. So decolonizing, indigenizing, re-indigenizing, decolonization. Like I said, that one of the first parts of that for a lot of us is that full review of the language we're using every word, every phrase, you know, what, what, where does this word come from? What else is it implying that my subconscious is hearing? What energy, what vibe, what mood does it create when I say it? Every phrase, like, is there some perpendicular meaning? Does it have a colloquial meaning, but the literal meaning is perpendicular because my subconscious and your subconscious are hearing both meanings. Why am I saying it? You know, we don't say fungal dominant composts. We say fungal prominent composts. And so it's not a political social thing. It's not to be cool or hip or PC or liberal. It's to be realistic. Because when you say a fungal dominant compost, that's not describing what it actually is. It's fungal prominent compost is describing what it actually is. We don't say that a mycelium colonizes the substrate. We say that it myceliates the substrate because it creates cognitive dissonance all of these words and phrases that we use colloquially that we know what it means and we know why we're, but, but it's got this other meaning and it's actually not saying what it really is. And so that creates cognitive dissonance and that disempowers us. Through that review of the language, 
we work all of that nonsense out, all that wasted energy out so that we can be more clear. So we're actually saying what something is. And it's such an important process for every human being to go through to that full, full, honest review of the language for that reason, to remove the cognitive dissonance so that we can focus all of our energy is all moving in the same direction in the direction of our will so that we can bring our spirit through cleanly and powerfully and be a full expression of ourselves in this lifetime. Early on in that review, a lot of us figure out why to not negate something negative in order to say something positive. So we don't say decolonization, we say indigenizing. A lot of us, like Robin Wall Kimmerer, I believe, says it in Braiding Sweetgrass, says re-indigenizing. And that is to specify the fact that all of our ancestors were indigenous people, tribal indigenous people, all of Europe, Africa, Turtle Island, Amaruka, Asia, everywhere. We were all indigenous, we are all indigenous people who have all dealt with genocides. We are all descended from the survivors of the terrible genocides of our indigenous tribal ancestors, every one of us. We're all reeling from these traumas, trying to figure this all out. We're all in this together. We're all in the same situation. We're all in it together. We need each other, you know? And so that's why we say indigenizing or re-indigenizing even, is to specify that we're all the same and that we're all in this together. Yeah, there's so many, so many ways. Land trusts, communal economic models, you know, that, that book, Jackson Rising, um, about Jackson, Mississippi, what they did down there, empowering themselves economically, decentralizing food systems, decentralizing power and water systems. There's a million ways, and all of it is the same movement. All the social justice, ecological justice, all this healing justice, all the Gabor Mate, the Margaret McFarland, Mr. Rogers, nonviolent communication, all of the, everything that the internal family systems is spreading through psychedelic community, psychedelic medicines, natural psychedelic plant and fungi medicines help people heal in unbelievable ways in all kinds of situations, not just in indigenous situations. Now we have a lot to learn from these ancient sciences that have been using these medicines. And so we should listen, really listen and receive the wisdom that our indigenous relatives are offering us about how to use these medicines. And purely techno-industrial people using these medicines in purely techno-industrial ways brings a lot of healing to a lot of people. And so it's nothing to be afraid of or shy away from because you don't need a translator between you and God. You don't need a translator between you and Mother Earth, between you and Son. You have direct lines of communication within you and those medicines will help you reestablish direct lines of communication between you and and all the aspects of yourself and and divine nature itself. Psychedelic medicines help us with that healing a whole lot. There are, there are a lot of ways. There are so many ways. Wonderful question. Thank you so much. Welcome. So what are some of the ways that you and others are enjoying the rewards of your effort to where you've gotten so far with what you've been doing? Well, you know, I mean, free food is one. Free nutrient-dense, medicine-dense food is one. Teaching people, I mean, just a thing I hear a whole lot, people come to me a whole, like very often and say, it feels so good to not be fighting now. That I'm not fighting weeds i'm not fighting mice or whatever we just these simple it's just the mood is we're from this planet there was never a time when we could keep mice out of our agro our agricultural areas or out of the food for like it was never it's not reality that we should or that we can even you know and but that fight that struggle is so deteriorating to my own emotional and psychological physical health and to just end that war and to accept all the beings and to create for all of them to, to, to own my 
job as a steward species and to take responsibility for my power, to step into my power as a steward species. As we are a special steward species that have special power. We are like beavers and wolves in that way, where we can care for many beings powerfully if we do our jobs right, you know? <laughs> and our job is to create a food forest paradise a biodiverse food forest paradise on this planet and maintain it. We've done that. We've done that before as a species. All of our ancestors were doing that for thousands of years, and we're not acknowledging it. But it's there is irrefutable archaeological, cultural evidence of this in all ecosystems and all continents on this planet. People are doing super biodiverse agroforestry and food forestry, whole continents all of Mesoamerica, all of North America, the Atlantic and the Amazon rainforest were created by human beings who remember doing that. And the archaeological evidence shows that that happened. The Mesoamerican peoples who turned Mesoamerica from an arid grassland into a biodiverse rainforest, food forest paradise, remember how they did that. And the, the ecologist, historian, anthropologists with PhDs in Western academia have shown that that's true, that that is the case, that humans arrived, turned it into tropical paradise and have shown that it's, I mean, the pollen records and rainfall records show that they maintained tropical forest tree species through droughts that are worse than what the U.S. Southwest is going through right now. And the Mayan empire did not collapse. It went for thousands of years longer. And they remember how they did that, you know, so that, that's our job. And we are powerful. We are powerful. We have this unbelievable power to do that. Yeah. I, th I feel like I'm ranting. I got off of the, the question. It's a lot of, a lot of cultural ways and a lot of just food abundance ways. And then having those medicines and then you know, in the centropic agroforestry garden, if you have a centropic garden with a food forest and a native species forced around that, then no matter what plant medicine, fungi medicine that is in your people's cosmology, there's a place for it somewhere in that system. And so we can preserve human, we preserve human cultures that globalism is threatening. You know, we find ways to defend and to preserve culture so that you can stay in relationship with that medicine that your grandmother taught you about you know that's the way that we benefit from this work there's, there's a lot of examples if your ideas your experience and your wisdom were all wrapped up in seeds of potential action for you to give to others what advice would you give to someone considering being involved in practicing the many forms of regenerative agriculture that you have learned mm -hmm. well i would say learn the fundamentals focus on the fundamentals more than the algorithms you know, then learn the algorithms, learn all of the schools of Western science that contribute to the conversation and learn as much of the ancient indigenous sciences as you can that contribute to that conversation. I would say really take seriously the practice of learning how to listen. I would say be patient and loving and gentle with yourself, cultivate self-love and self-worth, work out negative self-talk, become your biggest friend, ally, fan, supporter. I would say keep the bigger picture in mind. Keep asking yourself every step of the way, how does this help Mother Earth first and foremost? Then ask, how does this help human beings? And how does this help poor people? You know, if you have to purchase a product to do it, you're not helping, you know, like don't let that go. How, how does this help indigenous people? How does this help if grid were to collapse for a period of time? How could we do this for free without no inputs? Can we do this for free with no inputs? Like we're creating 
process-driven systems as opposed to input-driven systems so that they're free for all human beings. You know, keep, keep the bigger picture in mind. I would definitely warn against the savior delusion psychology. You know, don't bring solutions into communities that you're not connected with. Start with connection. Start with connection. Start by listening. You know, make connection. Open up relationships. Begin cultivating relationships. Then, yeah, and go from there. For me, I really look at connection first, then healing trauma, then helping people get their needs met, and then showing better ways. And not necessarily chronologically, but how are you going to help somebody heal trauma if you don't have a connection with them? I mean, they have to love and trust you and feel safe with you for them to even receive wisdom. And if I'm not doing it, you know, it's not, there's nothing even to communicate. So connection with myself, it's, I really think about connection, healing trauma, helping people get their needs met, and then showing better ways. Because if people aren't getting their needs met, that we can't be responsible. We have to do whatever we have to do just to survive. And we with diminished capacities. Same if we're not looking at our own trauma, if we're not going through all that with compassionately, like with compassion for ourselves, then I'm not going to have the capacities. You know, I'm going to be all my thought. I'll, I'll be driven by unconscious thought and behavioral patterns until I can relieve some of that charge. You know? Yeah, plant trees, focus on trees, focus on trees. We have to reforest the planet now. We have to get trees back into all of our agricultural systems. We have to do food forestry. We have to create food forests. Focus on trees, trees and shrubs and biodiversity. Focus on native species. We don't have to be fanatical about it, but definitely restore native biodiversity to preserve native biodiversity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So what resource, maybe a book or website or film, has been particularly helpful maybe in the beginning of what kind of seeded you know, your path and journey as you began or has at least been helpful on your journey. Lynn Margulis, the Lynn Margulis, the greatest microbiologist in the English-speaking world's history, one of the most influential Western scientists ever, like up there with Feynman and Newton. Most more well known for being Carl Sagan's widow, because she was a woman. Unfortunately, you know, one of the most influential Western scientists of all time, still mostly completely unknown because she was a woman. She advanced biology, ecology, and evolutionary biology knowledge more than everybody else combined, basically. Her books are tremendous. She helped, her and James Lovelock are the two who came up with Gaia theory, which is tremendously useful for us and valid. Her books, Microcosmos, is for, yeah, for me personally, Microcosmos, Lynn Margulis's book, L-Y-N-N, Margulis, M-A-R-G-U-L-I-S. Her book, Microcosmos, just completely opened my everything, my whole comprehension of what I am as a biological being, what biology is, what evolution is, everything. She, her books, like Chimeras and, and Consciousness, they're just, they're unbelievable. All of Lynn Margulis's books. The other thing was really studying mycology. Again, this is the fungi show up here. The fungi are the master chemists of this planet. They're doing all the amazing stuff. They're the communicators. They are the neural communication system. They are the of the forest. They are the, the resource distribution transportation system of the forest. The more I 
when I finally dove into mycology seriously is when all of my comprehension of all of this began to unfold in powerful ways. Elaine Ingham, um, Namaste Messerschmitt, you know, they're local heroes of mine, like Katrina Blair, Ash Ritter, Gabe Crawford up in Colorado, local heroes, Doug down here in the Gila, plant Doug. Yeah. And, and then spending time outside, quieting my mind next to big trees, big rocks, bodies of water, letting the forests direct me, using plant and fungi medicines, psychoactive plant and fungi medicines in nature, quieting my mind and allowing these conscious beings and these ecosystems that I'm a part of to communicate, to restore communication with me, to turn on, to get my capacities back online and stuff like that. So how so, you organizations and maybe like taking classes? Do you also teach classes remotely as well as in your area or how, how are you working as an organization? Yeah, thank you for asking. The The nonprofit I started to advance the work that I'm doing in research practice and education has just is just getting off the ground now along with the website, which is mothertree.earth, mothertree.earth. So I'm, right now I'm just doing content creation, trying to turn that website into the most valuable resource for agroecology and ecological restoration in the English-speaking world. That's my aim with that, and I think that should be true soon. So there are resources up there. I'm putting more and more resources up there. Right now, it's, I'm, I'm just traveling, teaching workshops, giving talks, teaching centropic agroforestry a whole lot. I trained in Milwaukee reforestation with that group, A Forest out of India, two Fs, two Ts, A Forest. They're brilliant, beautiful people. And so I think it's just people getting getting a hold of me. Like, if you would like me to come teach where you are, I really prefer to teach in person. I'm not teaching online yet. I'm kind of, I've shied away from that. And I, th you know, people are asking me to, and I know there are a lot of people that I'm not going to be able to reach in person. But I still prefer to do that. But if you would like me to come teach centropic agroforestry, if somebody is doing organic farming near you, if you or somebody is doing organic farming near you, and you would like to move to a powerfully, powerfully regenerative form of horticulture. I'd be happy to help you with that transition and to come teach it for a few days, like a few day long workshop where you are. You know, get a hold of me through the website, please. If you want help with a, if you'd like me to help plant a Milwaukee forest or something like that, please get a hold of me. I do, you know, consultation and help with implementation of all kinds of ecological restoration, agroecology, but especially food forestry. And yeah, if you want to do some guerrilla food forestry somewhere where we don't have permission to, like I'm in, just just contact me. Excellent. I live in southwestern New Mexico, and my stomping grounds are the southwestern quadrant of the United States. But I'm expanding more and more when I, when I travel and teach now, and so I'm you know even if, if you're in another part, another country, another part of this country, I'm definitely I would, you know, I'm open to the dialogue. You'd like to share. <laughs> words of wisdom maybe to people that are feeling frustrated with life and the state of the planet right now i know there's just a lot of for some people it's that feeling of kind of we're doomed um and feeling like they need to give up or they've already given up and then others are kind of locked in a very angry cycle and yeah it's valid but maybe you have what you want to share as we close oh yeah yeah gosh 
Yeah, I would just like to say I love you first and foremost, and that you're loved. And there are millions and millions and millions of people around the world understand and feel you and love you who are in, who are feeling this also together. The whole earth is feeling this together. Bacteria have all the endocrine hormones we have, trees, mushrooms. We had all those endocrine hormones before we were multicellular. That's how we navigate the world. That's how we're supposed to navigate the world and make decisions from our emotions. So whatever the earth is feeling, we are feeling. And the more sensitive you are, the less you can block that out. And earth is going through it right now. So we are all going through it right now. And that's what's happening. So if you're going through it right now, it's because you are online. Your capacities are online. It means you're healthy. So you're not alone. We have agency right now as a species. We could reforest this planet in 10 years if we choose to. We have all the people, all the power. We forfeit our, we have forfeited our power, but all power is derived of the people, you know, in the sense that we talk about power in that way, that type of power, all of it is derived from the people that, that expression, all power to the people has a lie in it because all power in that sense of the word power is derived of the people. We have all the power. We have power. We have agency right now, plant trees, plant trees. If you like, we, we, we don't do the right thing with the expectation of a reward. We don't do the right thing with the expectation of acknowledgement or for, you know, for any other reason. We do the right thing just because it's the right thing. And so we have only to plant trees. Our species has only to plant trees. Now, I talked to, I've been working with some people in climate tech who are feeling climate anxiety huge. And I think it's because they can't see how they're helping. If you plant a tree, you can see how you're helping. I help people with climate anxiety by getting them planting trees. And it helps. And people feel better because now they can see that they're helping plant trees. Yeah. Love yourself. Be gentle and patient with yourself first and foremost. Start there. Really cultivate that. Cultivate gentleness and patience with yourself. There are a lot of sciences for how to get negative self-talk out of you and get positive self-talk, encouraging, loving, supportive self-talk to be the norm. And it's those, these methods work. We can do that. I've done that with myself. It's not completely done. I'm not, you know, I haven't arrived at some plateau or something, you know, but it works. I can tell you from firsthand experience, it works and it frees you up to where you can put your power into creating solution. Yeah. Be loving and gentle, patient with yourself, quiet your mind daily, quiet, make sure you're spending at least seven minutes every single day with your mind completely still no conversation no music no worrying about what's about to happen no regret about what did happen none of the conflict at work or this that thing that happened the terrible breakup and that was so unfair none of that all the vrittis complete still water like glass in your mind seven minutes a day bare minimum if you're dealing with anxiety sadness anger fear frustration around global climate Make sure that you're spending seven minutes a day. Bare minutes, start there. Get up to 20 or 30 minutes a day. You know, quiet your mind every single day. Do that in nature. Be in nature when you do that. Remember that you are nature. Try to break down the distinction and the language. For, I mean, help help me, please, with this re-indigenizing of our language. And let us spend time in the ecosystems that we are a part of every day with our minds quiet, listening. Let us learn how to listen to each other, to ourselves, to the subtle voices inside of ourselves. Let us learn how to feel our feelings and even those subtle little fluctuations of feelings, all the physical sensations, the emotions, all the feelings. Yeah, keep looking at improving self-care. Take care of yourself. You deserve it. 
You deserve it. You are no different than that young child who you've loved most in your life, daughter, son, niece, nephew, whoever it was, it was a dog, whoever that was that you had unconditional positive regard for. You are no different. We are all of the same divine family together. You're exactly the same. You deserve it. You deserve it. Take good care of yourself. Love yourself really, really well. Yeah. And then keep planting trees, get other people to plant trees. And I would like to give my little hundred trees a year pitch, please, before we go, Jenny. There's a movement spreading around the world called OTA, O-H-T-A-Y, 100 trees a year. There's a movement called 100 trees a year that's spreading around the world now where we're asking every person we talk to, whenever we're on stage or a podcast, every friend, every family member, every neighbor, every person we work with, every person that we know, we're asking them to commit to themselves, not to me or anybody else, but just to commit to yourself, please, to plant 100 trees a year for the rest of your life. And if that sounds like a big ask to you right now, then all I'm asking you right now is to just make space on your shelf to consider that in good time, please. That's one of the pieces of it. The other piece of this movement, we're also asking everybody to let everybody that they know, know that we're all doing this now. And so it, it's surprisingly easy. You know, when you start out, a lot of people are like, what, that's crazy, no. And then later they're like, well, okay, I mean, I could like use my backyard maybe as a tree nursery. Like, what does that look like? And they start thinking, maybe it's 10 trees this year, 50, 60 next year, 100, 200 the year after that. It's pretty easy to plant a thousand trees in a year, honestly. And even if you're not planting living trees, like germinating them and cultivating them, maybe you're just, when you're hiking, you're seeing tree seeds sitting on the earth and just every time you hike, you put 10 of those an inch under the earth because you just increase their germination and survival rate like hundreds, orders of magnitude when you do that. And that's really simple. So if this sounds like a big ask to you right now, then please make space on your shelf to consider it in good time and begin considering, please, how you could contribute like this creatively like that. Maybe, maybe you have a big tree in your backyard. A tree is a tree nursery. Tree nurseries just mimic trees because every tree evolved to be born and go through its childhood under trees. So that's what a tree nursery is. That's what a nursery is. It's just to mimic the canopy of a forest. And so if you have a big tree near you, you already have a tree nursery near you. And so maybe you don't have the time or energy right now, but maybe there's some kid in your neighborhood who does. Young people understand this. Young people understand what's going on. They understand the significance of what's going on and the importance you know, so find a young person in your neighborhood, maybe offer that space to them. And then maybe you have a little bit extra money, you can offer that young person to buy some potting soil or some plant pots or whatever it is. And just begin, please, considering how you could help this movement. And please help this movement. And please help spread this movement. 100 trees a year. Ote. If you haven't yet visited your local Green Online Hub, then please visit gogreenlocally.org and check out the directories for events, groups, businesses, online resources, and local support listings for your area. If you find something is missing, then let us know or just log in and add it. These are community free sharing directories.